Hi, I'm Tor, and I'm here to share secrets. And today, I'm sharing secrets with Jake Bruckman of CoinFund. Jake is a wonderful guest because he brings a wide variety of perspectives to every conversation. He's very familiar with blockchain products as a builder and a user. He's an experienced investor. He understands staking. He understands incentives. So on this episode, where we spend a lot of time talking about things like NFTs and DeFi, uh, his ability to synthesize all of these different perspectives and provide a unique take on the how these different pieces of the blockchain industry are evolving uh, it's just really cool to hear because there aren't a lot of people like him. So I don't want to over-introduce Jake because I think the conversation will speak for itself. So without any further ado, here is Jake Bruckman. Jake, thank you so much for agreeing to share some secrets with me. I'm super excited for this conversation. Hey, Tor. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast, not for the first time, but for the second time. Yes, you you are one of the very first guests in our rebranded effort where we where we share secrets more than we sp- speculate on what it takes to actually decentralize. That that's a a fun topic right now, anyways. But uh, but mostly I'm I'm curious about your secrets. Uh, you you've been on a lot of podcasts lately, but let's see if we can't make this one uh, even more revealing, even even more interesting <laughs> uh, for a lot of people who I'm sure are very curious about uh, who you are and what you do. So, with that said. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, uh, thank you for asking. I'm Jake Brookman. I'm the founder and CEO of CoinFund. CoinFund is a um, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology investment firm. Uh, we've been around for, for a number of years. We launched our first fund in, in July of 2015 um, and just have really been watching all of this space go from uh, over the years, from just Bitcoin to uh, to Ethereum to smart contracts to protocols and um, and the rich ecosystem that we have today, I'm more excited, I think, than I've ever been about the growth and progress uh, that blockchain has achieved. Uh, and I'm here to talk about kind of the latest. Yeah, the latest is exciting because the latest is adoption. It's it's all the things we kind of spoke about a couple years ago, thinking, are people actually going to get hands-on with applications that are built for blockchains, where the application isn't you know, a token sale, but it's maybe some sort of decentralized financial platform or uh, something you've been talking about lately, uh, NFTs. So I figure, let's, let's start with something that we talked about a couple years ago, but maybe are just, for some reason, only getting super hot now. I've always thought this was a fascinating use case for blockchains is non-fungible tokens, NFTs. What has happened faster than you expected in the last couple of years with NFTs, since that's the last time we really got a chance to talk about this? Like, there, clearly some stuff has accelerated. We're seeing a lot of adoption from, from artists, uh, but there's probably also some things that are taking longer than you expected so let's let's just get a heat check on nfts today what's been happening faster than you expected what are we still waiting to see the high level is that we're seeing some i would say like very very early and still pre-mainstream consumer um product market fit so we'll we'll talk about that um in terms of um in terms of what's what's working and what's not like i remember at the end of 2016 writing kind of the coin fund year in review and say and writing something down like oh my god i think you know decentralized exchanges are going to be huge next year 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that was meant to be in 2017. And of course, that never really happened. The technology um, needed to develop a lot more. And it took until quite literally Q2 of this year, 2020, um, for Dexis to start really aggregating users in a big way. And, and more broadly, DeFi, uh, which makes very heavy use of decentralized exchange. And then the other area that has been uh, achieving some early product market fit this year has been, as you point out, NFTs, non-fungible assets. And the way that this is um, mostly been characterized in the market is by a growth of on-chain volume um, uh, in, in basically the trading of these objects, just kind of the general popularity of NFTs and, and now a lot of thinking around where do we go from here? You know, um, for the last couple of years, NFTs have been sort of synonymous with uh, trading pictures of cats on blockchains or uh, buying digital art on the blockchain or buying collectibles on the blockchain. But the thesis that we have produced this year uh, as we became investors in an NFT marketplace called Rarible really uh, takes the stand that this is a much broader asset class than just art. Hmm. I'd be curious to hear, like, where where does this go beyond art? Because when I hear NFTs, I just think, and, and I think a lot of people probably think, like, I made a GIF and I can represent it on a blockchain. It's a lot more complicated than that. So wh- where are you seeing uh, the growth then, the most interesting growth or the most potential for growth and mainstream adoption? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so to answer that question, it's kind of important to hear the criticism of uh, perhaps like the art use case of, of NFTs, right? And mm-hmm. what a lot of people have said in the past, they said, and still continue, by the way, to say today on, on Twitter and beyond, um, they say, well, why would I um, pay someone money on the blockchain for an image of their artwork when I can just right-click on that artwork and download it to my computer and print it out and put it on my wall? Why would I ever pay money for that? Um, and the answer is... That because, um, you know, in the future, perhaps not exactly today, but but soon, um, you, you have to realize that what you're paying for is not the image, but rather a license to the image, like intellectual property rights. And so once you take that view that, you know, if there's a creator and that creator, uh, like, quote unquote, mints a non-fungible token that contains a piece of his art and then confers property rights to the buyer around that art. And these could be prop, you know, these could be the rights to own, to sell, to lend, um, to uh, create a royalty stream, to, um, you know, give movie rights and that content to modify that content. Like there's a rich set of property rights that could be applied here, just like we apply property rights to, um, you know, to open source software and things like that. And once you start to take that view, then you realize that, it's not just art uh, to which property rights and intellectual uh, property rights apply. It's also things like collectibles. It's also things like 3D models. It's things like uh, music, like movies, like stock photography. Um, you start getting into the idea of blog posts, right? There are people uh, out there in the world who make money by writing and selling and syndicating the rights to their writing um, for in return for, for royalties. Um, and then this list starts going on and on and on. And um, 
you know, if you admit blog posts as something that could be tokenized, you will admit tweets eventually. You'll admit um, certainly Instagram posts. And once you start to count up the number of digital content objects out there, and we didn't even touch upon like domain names or like things denoting electromagnetic spectrum or, you know, all, all these other things uh, that could be digitally uh, contained on a, on a blockchain. Once you start counting up those objects, you get into like the tens of trillions of objects or even hundreds of trillions of objects. And if you believe just 1% of them is valuable and maybe each one is only worth like a penny, um, you know, you still get a very interesting target market for, for NFTs. And so the broad spectrum view of NFTs is that it's not just art, it's not just collectibles. It's actually like any kind of digital content um, that you can uh, tokenize in this way. And eventually it'll also extend to uh, physical objects in the world as well. Yeah, the physical objects idea is interesting because we're not just talking about physical works of art or sneakers or, or things of that nature, but now we're getting into the realm of like real estate or, or other things where there is like a provably scarce physical supply of the object and it has a digital twin or again there's like digitally scarce licenses uh for how a physical object could be utilized and as we've said like because an nft can really be or represent anything there's all different ways for for that license to work or for it to represent and i think this is taking us to a challenge that uh I have with NFTs and DeFi and a lot of the stuff that we're saying is achieving product market fit in 2020, which is that we're seeing a lot of adoption, at least from the very early adopters. And we still don't have really good, like one sentence definitions for what this stuff actually is. So if I asked you for your one sentence definition of an NFT in a way that you think would get somebody really excited, I just heard you're like, 17 paragraph definition but what what is like mm -hmm. the one sentence hook that we would use for nfts well very simply it's just you know nfts are blockchain tokens that uh denote um like kind of unique value or the or the value of unique objects you know when you think about art um not all pieces of art are worth the same amount of money They're, each one is unique each one has its own value and so the different tokens that represent different works of art represent the unique values of those objects. It's a good definition for like what an NFT is. And then I guess it gets into the question of why is it better than what we already do, like in the in the mainstream world? So uh, my, my question there, I guess, is what's it going to take now for the mainstream world to accept the value of provably scarce but purely digital works is this a, a technical barrier that we're trying to overcome or is this like a cultural barrier we're trying to overcome or is it an economic barrier we're trying to overcome where it's just like there it just isn't uh a a scalable enough economy around nfts that we haven't seen people put their entire careers behind it that we haven't seen like the killer platforms like really get that kind of adoption are, are we just waiting for that or is there going to have to be some sort of broader cultural shift around how we value purely digital goods well i would say that um i would say that nfts are valuable or at least this view of nfts as um liquid intellectual property or liquid on ip is precisely valuable because we don't 
do those things in real life. What what I mean by those things, I I mean that um, there's certainly art out there. There's certainly physical art. There's certainly people making digital art, but very seldom do people, um, you know, uh, monetize their digital art by putting it on global open marketplaces as um, you know as intellectual property that's traded on open markets. And so the whole thesis is what it's really saying is that um, we don't have liquidity in this asset class. There's a whole world of digital creators out there that certainly use the internet to market themselves, but almost never use the internet as a secondary market for their assets that they create. Um, they just don't monetize their work that way. And what NFTs do is they take this intellectual property that's never really been on liquid secondary markets, and it uses blockchain technology to put them on secondary markets. And, and that's enabled by like the strong ownership that you can create um, by virtue of using a blockchain to tokenize. And once you do that, I think what happens is that you unlock a huge amount of value that really was never traded before. And and that's that's why, you know, wearing my investor hat, I am attracted mm-hmm. to this space. Well, my my theory is is maybe not that different from yours. My theory is that when we get to the point where you have like the first New York Times headline that says like the blockchain billionaire and it wasn't because they mined Bitcoin in 2010, but it was because it was an artist who was also a collector, who was also a visionary for one of these platforms. And now there's a profile showing how they just got super, super rich. Because that apparently seems to be what, what hooks people into this space when they see not only like, oh, the, the technology is cool. Wow, it's unlocking this different sort of universe. There, there's real like economic value. It really only seems to matter at the end of the day once that economic value is is realized and that's mm-hmm. something that i think DeFi, for example it's been a lot more tangible because the product of DeFi is money like the, the product is money the platforms are money and liquidity and leverage and so on so i, I want to pivot slightly for a second taking all your thoughts around nfts let's map them onto DeFi for a second i have the same problem with DeFi. please define DeFi for me in one sentence <laughs> you're luck. making me work today <laughs> I know. Sorry. That's what I do. Um, well, DeFi stands for decentralized finance, and I would describe it as simply uh, a bunch of blockchain-based smart contract implemented protocols that um, offer the same kinds of services uh, that we're used to in traditional finance, like banking services, lending, money markets, stock trading, um, and so on, insurance, right, and so on and so forth. Um, but now, using blockchain technology, uh, we can implement those kinds of same those same kinds of services, but without the intermediaries, uh, the same kind of intermediaries required. Uh, I'm not sure if that was one sentence, but I, it was good enough. And I mean, the you have a very low bar here because I think that every definition I've heard falls short in <laughs> some way. And and when most people hear DeFi now. They're, they're not thinking your sentence, which is very well articulated. They're, think, they're thinking something a little more simple, where it's like, I can take my ETH, I can take my Bitcoin right now. I, I, it's not working for me. I'm going to make it work for me. It's going to make me more Bitcoin. It's going to make me more Ether. It's going to make me more of some asset. And I'm starting well, to... Well, oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, I, w- I was just going to say, Tor, so, so there's a basic definition here, which is the, essentially the decentralization of finance, right? right? But, the, but the, um, the impact and the implications of decentralizing finance are, you know, they're vast, right? And that's, yeah. you, you got to discuss the implications as well. So I just kind of gave you the, sure. you know, the mathematical definition. But if we think about what falls out of that definition... It's also the idea that, you know, finance becomes globally available to everyone. It, you know, some of the processes of finance, like market making, becomes available to retail investors where it was not available before. It was in the realm of hedge funds and, and large institutions to do things like that. And so you open up this whole world of kind of investment opportunities as well as services. Okay, so I agree with you. But then let me submit this. I I think that decentralized finance, like we're trying to discuss it, if we're saying that that's the ultimate good of decentralized finance, that sounds a little bit more to me like permissionless finance. But permissionless finance, when you shorten it, is PFI, and it doesn't sound as good, to be sure. But there's a lot of things that are not very decentralized, to me at least, about decentralized finance. Uh, now we're starting to pick a little bit at the themes of decentralized this more so than sharing secrets. But what are your thoughts right now on how decentralized decentralized finance actually is? And I'm going to scope that on two points. One is, do we actually think that we're creating a decentralized financial system in that the winners are more distributed versus like the sharks are still winning? And then my second point is, how decentralized is it when people can generally speaking like pause contracts pause token contracts have admin keys to smart contracts for a lot of these DeFi products so like how decentralized is yeah. DeFi today you know so so on the second point um yes you bring up a good point which is that uh there's a bunch of projects out there doing DeFi, and you know if you pick a random one there's like a good chance that um there are some admin keys going on and maybe this thing is not like fully decentralized and strict using this like very strict definition of decentralization. That being said, I, I think we're like super early in DeFi, right? Like I would, I would argue like most DeFi projects launched this year, if not in like Q2 of this year. And what that means is that they're all on um, kind of a roadmap. Uh, of getting into market, of building a demand side, of building a supply side, of becoming, um, you know, a production-ready kind of protocol, and that also means that they're on a roadmap of decentralization. And those ad- admin keys at, at some point will get thrown out, and you know, chances are uh, the governance of that protocol will be handed to token holders. And so I wouldn't judge decentralized finances decentralization on the status quo of where it is today, I would judge it on where is it going. And I would argue that that most of these protocols will be highly decentralized over time. And I would also argue that there will be certain use cases which um, kind of uh, mesh together with, with centralized solutions and give some of the value propositions of blockchains and of decentralization, of openness, of permissionlessness to projects that are otherwise centralized projects and that's okay too i think i think different kinds of projects can use these features in different ways and it it doesn't have to be the case that you must be decentralized in fact it's so that's often been a handicap and and a risk 
uh, in early stage projects to be really, really decentralized in the beginning. So let me say that. And, and, and the other point I think you brought up was like a lot of people tend to tout um, decentralized finance as being very democratizing. And then people sort of push back on that because, you know, in a lot of these incentive systems and a lot of these governance systems and a lot of the systems around DeFi, it actually matters quite a bit how much money you have. And so if you're, you know, if you're a whale out of the gate um, and have like a large stake in, in the system, then you're automatically more influential. Is that did I get your sort of question correctly there? Yeah, you definitely yeah. did. And what I would say to that is. You know, that's that's definitely um, that's definitely like true on, on certain dimensions and and, and, and often uh, or it could be the case that um, that that's like highly suboptimal. Right. So, for example, if you have a system whose voting is sort of dominated by whales and we've seen plenty of examples of this, like, for example, the Digix Dow vote, uh, which happened in January of this year, was just completely dominated and executed by, by the whales of that system. In other words, you're, you're participating in a governance system, which is dictatorial that has one or, or a couple, you know, dictators that sort of like tell everybody else what to do. And I would say like long-term, like those kinds of systems are probably um, suboptimal if they are implementing public goods. On the other hand, you have other kinds of systems where you, they're very technical and you sort of don't want to give governance to people who don't know what they're doing. Those people um, might set a parameter that might <laughs> destroy the system. And so I would argue like in things like, um, you know, open source code bases for very like mission critical systems, like you kind of want to give the experts outsized control because they're the best people to make decisions. And of course, the innovation of blockchain puts the truth somewhere in between because what you see is, a bunch of systems with whales, but at the same time, um, these systems are implementing things like delegation. And voting delegation is a mechanism that could keep whales in check if they become too powerful. Um, and the other thing to say is most decentralized systems, um, you know, especially when it comes to governance, they have this property called capture resistance, which means that um, I wrote about this in a in a blog post I published recently called the 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 nine core value propositions of blockchains on our blog at CoinFund. Uh, but anyway, th this is um, this property essentially says, look, if if some group of people, if some coalition um, becomes too powerful and starts exercising tyranny on the rest of the uh, participants of the system, those participants have the ability to create a copy, a fork of the system and go off on their own and, and cut those guys out. And we've actually seen this this summer all over DeFi, right? Like we've seen um, community projects get really annoyed with the fact that early, you know, quote unquote, VC style investors are taking too much stake of tokens in, in early stages. And they've created forks of well-known protocols like uh, like Compound and Curve, um, and sort of re rejigger the cap table to suit more of a community agenda. And so I would argue that even though, yes, you could certainly find instances where, you know, of suboptimal systems, of systems that, that are dominated by, by kind of outsized participants, unfairly even, um, the, the core 
structure of these systems allows us to nevertheless keep iterating, making them better, making them more equitable, um, or even forking them into uh, into into systems that presumably could work better uh, because they're you know they're more evenly distributed. Yeah, there was a lot of great stuff in there because now you're combining pretty much everything that I know that you work on, which is you know we've we've talked a little bit about you know, NFTs and, and scarcity, but now we've talked about DeFi and now we're talking about governance as well. And the and the inextricable links we're seeing now between these DeFi platforms that are emerging and governance of these platforms. And yeah, the, the D and DeFi does not necessarily stand for democratic. Something could be <laughs> decentralized on paper, but when it comes to like being able to like I, I think with like the uni token for Uniswap, some of this was going on where like it's it's almost impossible for most people to even submit any kind of governance proposal to the network. So, you know, who who's to say, right? So without picking on any project in particular, there's obviously a need to answer all of these questions simultaneously and somehow understand all these questions simultaneously, which makes it really hard. So what I, let me let me ask you a different question before we get into a, another technical topic, privacy. Let me just ask you, you're in an interesting position, like you specifically, because you're, you're you're investing in all of these things. You're also creating art. You're also in a position where you're an educator about a lot of these topics. Like, what do you feel like is your responsibility? in trying to mainstream a lot of this stuff and getting people to understand that it's not just governance, it's not just the the security of the platforms, it's not just the community aspect, it's everything at once, right? Like, how, how do you see your own role specifically, I think, on like education or, or the way that you support the, the projects that you've chosen to support or as a creator on these platforms? I'm just so fascinated by like, you clearly understand most pieces of the buffalo how do you reassemble the buffalo then when you're when you're trying to add value to all of these ecosystems yeah that that's a fantastic question tor and you know kind of a an important one right and and i felt like um you know i definitely feel that that my demeanor toward toward blockchain is one of kind of truth seeking and and like just trying to get to the data trying to get to um uh to 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 get this technology adopted in a way that is you know both world changing but at the same time responsible right and I, and I just think I, I just think about things like you know at coinfund like our slack in 2016 was really like the first um, research group where people could go and and, and actually do data driven sort of research in a space that was otherwise like extremely biased in, in various ways. Like everyone sort of operated on Twitter, everyone sort of talked their cryptocurrency book, whatever it was they were holding at that time, Bitcoin, Ether, Dogecoin, right? But we kind of, you know, our demeanor was like, let's look at the data and let's not be, let's not take the Bitcoin maximalist approach of rejecting innovation and let's, let's give every technology and every project sort of do, um, you know, due diligence, essentially, an opportunity to show like, hey, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. And to be sure, I mean, there were projects that were um, really great and there were projects that were also highly suboptimal and didn't didn't really work. And, and, and those projects, I think, are important as well because they sort of teach you um, the mistakes that people make and, and they help you to get to the right answer. They help us to get to the right answer as a, as an industry. Um, 
And I would say like, I've always been trying to be like a researcher and, and trying to be as like neutral as I can. And I can't be totally neutral because I'm a, I'm an right. investor and I, be, I believe certain uh, projects uh, or I believe in certain projects more than others. And, and also there's a gray area, right? Like what is um, innovative technology to one person or what are like world changing experiments to one person seem really dangerous and reckless to somebody else. And it's also like a point of view that you have to take in blockchain. What you see on the conservative side of the spectrum, like, you know, kind of the, again, like the Bitcoin side of things, right? Is people don't want to, uh, uh, they, they don't want to experiment with ICOs. They don't want to experiment with capital formation. They don't want to experiment with smart contracts. They don't want to experiment with DeFi. They're like very happy not to do that. And then what you see on the other end of the spectrum are people experimenting maybe too much and being too fast and loose and, and, and creating technologies that may be like before their time. And one example of that might be the Dow, right, which spectacularly exploded in a hack um, and then lost people 55 million bucks and, and really had a profoundly negative impact on the developments of, of the governance space for, for many years. And so like my demeanor has always been like be data driven, you know, kind of seek seek the trends and theses that that I think are most probable based on on my experience and and, and just kind of do your best. Um, yeah. So let me say that. There's one more hat that I'm going to ask you to put on to close this topic, which is now you're a you're a user. Let's say you're an artist because I, I know that you are. How do you decide then? You're a truth seeker as an artist, I imagine, as well. And now you're evaluating all of these different platforms that currently exist, or you're evaluating platforms that you wished existed. So not as an investor, not as uh, necessarily a technologist, but as an artist. If you were to look at all these platforms right now, uh, specifically ones that are focused on things like NFTs in the in the decentralized blockchain space, how are you deciding which ones that you're committing yourself to experimenting with? Like, what is it about that platform that as a truth seeker is then drawing you into that ecosystem, all other hats aside? Well, I would say as an investor, I, you know, I, most of the time I'm trying to come up with ideas about what's going to work. And as a, as a, um, you know, an active participant or, or a user or customer, um, I'm often faced with the reality of like what doesn't, right? Hmm. And so, um, so, so being a user really helps to like understand the pain points of products, and it um, also you know suggests solutions, right, or, or where we should go. Um, being an investor is a, is a lot about um, is a lot about like thinking about the future and trying to understand kind of how to participate, you know, in in certain growth of, of, of products in the space um, and also how to make those products come to fruition faster and and more probably um, and also portfolio building is like a huge part of I mean running a fund or, or, or being even like an individual investor and those are really quite different you know um, occupations right being being an investor looking at product and being a user looking at product but I think both are equally uh, uh, important to understanding. I'll give you like a concrete example, right? Great. Like you mentioned that I was, uh, that I am someone who creates NFTs. And this is true. I have minted 
uh, some of my art that I've made personally um, on a number of platforms out there. And one thing that like really stuck out to me is how not a single NFT platform, except maybe for one, that, that was the one we invested in back in 2019, <laughs> um, had a mobile experience, right? And I'm hmm. thinking specifically for marketplaces. I'm thinking about marketplaces because marketplaces are the places where um, that are like kind of the core infrastructure of NFTs. And they're also the places where engagement is going to create fundamental cash flows. In other words, if you engage your users in the marketplace, you're going to increase your GMV, your gross marketplace volume, no doubt. And it seemed like such low-hanging fruit to say, look, if only some of these marketplaces created a mobile app, let users follow their favorite creator, and then as soon as that creator dropped the work, they would get a notification on, on their phone. That would be amazing impact for engagement. I, I would posit to say that it would raise engagement three times. That's my guess. And this is an educated guess based on the fact that I was invested in a company mm. that created NFTs and its whole experience was mobile. And what we saw from that, even though the, the, the company itself was a bit too early and kind of pivoted out of blockchain later, it didn't stick with NFTs, unfortunately, but, but nevertheless, they were able to convert just about every single NFT creator that was out there in the world um, at that time, very early in like early 2019, just on this idea that this is a high engagement mobile experience. That's a and great, so, yeah, it's a great concrete example. And you're, you're currently sharing secrets and leaking alpha, it feels. So that's great. <laughs> well, I think, I think a lot of folks in the NFT space now kind of have, have realized that. And I, I do think a lot of platforms out there are heading for mobile experiences. And part of it is just also the maturity of the space. Not everyone had, um, you know, funding to, to build an app, which is hard and you got to hire developers and do a development process, right? So totally get that. But point, point being is that as a user, like you really get a feel for, for those kinds of things that, you know, they're not working. And, and, and that really informs me personally, uh, being a user informs me personally uh, as an investor, for sure. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I love seeing uh, people who, who intend to develop their perspective, not just from you know, watching from afar, uh, but from getting down onto the field. So given that, I, I wanted to ask you some questions about something that I know a little bit more about. I, I am not somebody who regularly tokenizes my art, but I am somebody who speaks very regularly and am passionate about privacy and what privacy can unlock for a lot of different uh, use cases and verticals that we're, that we're seeing for blockchain. And when we talk about NFTs and when we talk about DeFi and when we talk about governance, I see a lot of ways that having more robust privacy technologies can contribute to more security, more usability, and hopefully more global adoption of all of these. So we can mm -hmm. take them one by one, but the one I'm most curious about, uh, since you've been focusing on it lately, is NFTs. And we're thinking a lot about how is you know the introduction of privacy technologies going to change things potentially within the market for NFTs? Uh, and there's a couple ways this could manifest. So let me see, let me see what you think. But like one is around like more private ownership of non-fungible assets, which as you said, could represent anything, not only art, 
or we're talking about potentially privacy preserving auctions for assets uh, where you yeah. don't want the bids to be leaked. So where do you think something like privacy could have an impact for better or worse on what we're currently seeing in that space? Yeah, so I mean, like the first functional thing your mind jumps to, of course, is stuff like privacy preserving auctions. I don't I don't actually think that that's a, that anyone in the NFT space who's creating like auction platforms actually wants those auctions to be private, to be honest, because um, those are all um, kind of price discovery mechanisms. And it's important that like marketplace participants actually do see the prices in auctions. And so there might be de there definitely might be use cases for for privacy preserving auctions, but by and large, what we see is um, auctions are the predominant way that people buy NFTs today. If you look at the stats, like 90% of sales are in something like that. Like like only 10% are like fixed price sales, mm -hmm. and the vast majority, if not all, of the auctions that are out in the market right now, that 90% are going to be publicly known and ascertained uh, auctions, right? Um, and there's there's a certain value to that. Where I actually go, where my mind goes with privacy, is there was a very interesting post by Ian Lee on the Defiant, where he was kind of saying, you know, um, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting when NFTs don't just denote art, they also denote experiences, right? Like if, imagine, oh, you go to a conference. And for being at the conference, you get an NFT, an NFT for your attendance. In fact, there is a protocol that does that already today. It's called POAP, mm -hmm. Proof of Attendance Protocol. Uh, you might have seen those guys yep. uh, around. Patricia is great. Yeah. And then someone in my network read that piece and they were like, you know, that's kind of like cookies for, <laughs> for, for, for stuff that you do in real life that you could then denote with NFTs. And when you get into that area, that is one place where, where I think privacy really does matter. Because if you think about mm, like all the controversies over the years of, uh, of how cookies work and what information they store and how Facebook knows that you're on a certain website, even if you're not kind of directly going there through Facebook uh, because of cookies um, you know, and things like that, then you start to realize that they're, that they're almost certainly are going to be use cases denoted by NFTs where, where you really do want a high degree of privacy to hide your personal use. And that's where I think most of the privacy tech is going to head toward in that space. I, I, and I find that to be actually a much more expansive vision of privacy as well versus something that's more of like a narrow implementation within a specific platform. So my, my vision yeah. towards NFTs is very close to yours. Let me push back quickly on one thing, though, with when it comes to auctions, because it's the same conversation that actually comes up around privacy in governance. So there's also the option to do privacy preserving voting in governance and be able to you know vote uh as part of a dao or as part of some some other uh mm -hmm. governance-based organization on some outcome and you do not want that linked back to uh, your particular identity but you're you want your vote to count and ha and for it to count as much as you weight your vote uh so th this comes up a lot where people are like well do we really want voting to be private what happens when voting is private and sometimes i say well that's kind of how votes work in the real world so maybe it's not so bad. It's how we pick 
presidents and, and congressmen and things like that. But, but I think it's something else, which is that I, I think a lot of the time it becomes an extreme and we, and we don't talk about the gray area. So when I talk about privacy preserving auctions, I don't just mean like absolutely everything is obscured. Like the source of each bid is obscured. You never know even who wins the auction. You don't see the bids at varying stages. The problem seems to me that we don't have much of a degree of choice in how the auctions are structured if every piece of the process must be public by design. So when we talk about, uh, with Secret Network, we talk about programmable privacy. The idea that you can have these arbitrarily complex data privacy controls written directly you know, into the smart contract where, where all of the data is private by default, but you can have more, uh, more sorts of access control sort of written in. Do you feel like when you hear the word privacy, like j just on a instinctual personal level, do you think that your mind goes to the place that most people minds goes where it's like now everything is obscured, everything is hidden. It's, it's more about like making sure nobody finds out anything. Or do you see it more like me where it's more like by giving people at least the choice of privacy or the option to make some things secret and some things public? Is that a form of privacy? Is that what you think of when you think of it? Like, I'm, I definitely know I'm on that end. So I'm curious to hear, like, is yeah. that your perception of the term? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm I'm kind of more on your end of the spectrum here, Tor, because, you know, I like where, where I like my inroad into kind of the privacy concept is really through the ideas of digital privacy. And um, it, over the years, right, like we have created all of these applications and, and they really have been created for us by by big tech um, which provide a bunch of tools that we use every day digitally in our digital lives but really are like the data there are not is not owned by us and it's not truly private so I find it like very weird that um, like for example I can write in a physical um, journal right and and sort of that's private but I can also write in a Google Doc, and that's not. And even even though like those things sh should be functionally equivalent to each other, it's just that one is a analog tool and one is a digital tool to achieve the same the same result. And yet they're treated so so differently. And so to me, like a lot of privacy is around data privacy. Um, and when it comes to like data privacy, I think people should have a choice. Some things should be just for them, like for whatever purpose they, they want to use it for, like writing a secret journal for themselves. And other things they should be able to choose to share with third parties. Um, and by having strong ownership of their own data, uh, they're able to monetize it. And this kind of brings us back to the same exact concept as non-fungibles, right? If you have strong ownership of your digital content, you can go ahead and, and monetize it. And it's really not the case sort of today. So I would say, I would say for me, yeah, it's it's around giving users the power to decide what digitally is private for them and and what is uh, shareable. You have you have now made an even better argument for privacy on blockchain and secret network than I usually make. So I thank you for that because I, I think that's so so well articulated. 
Um, and, and you do really hammer home that point around like what it means for choice and consent better than I do. And, and I do try to raise it a lot because it is something I'm particularly passionate about. And it is a perception I'm trying to change, especially within the blockchain space where when people hear privacy, they think of Monero or they think of like a money laundering thing. They don't think of right. we're protecting they think of users. Swiss bank accounts. Yeah. And, and that it, it's so natural. And yet, as we said earlier in the podcast, we are technologists, we're investors, uh, we're users. We have an obligation with all of those roles to try to educate and to try to build the platforms that we really would like to be using ourselves as users and that we really think are a net value add to the world. So I, I can't really think of a better way to sort of wrap up our conversation except to say, I, I think that you are doing all of those things in all of your roles. And I, I'm very, I am very excited to see what happens next for you personally, for CoinFund, for some of these platforms that you're supporting both as an investor and as a user. So in this last couple of minutes, if there's anywhere that you think listeners should go to read more of what you've been writing or learning more about CoinFund or anything that you've been investing in, you, you, get, yeah. you get some open shill time. Take it away. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for that. Uh, I would say, you know, if you're interested in some of these topics that we've been discussing, check out my la latest couple of posts on uh, blog.coinfund.io. One is called the nine core value propositions of crypto networks. And that goes into like why blockchain technology is, um, I think, very competitive uh, with traditional incumbent companies that are offering the same kind of services that blockchain networks are. And another post is called All Digital Content is Going on Chain. And this is our NFT thesis. It's positioning, um, you know, our investment in Rarible.com, uh, which is an NFT marketplace, and, and kind of laying out the case for uh, NFTs as liquid intellectual property. Um, and, yeah, check out some of the other podcasts that I've done recently on, on these same topics. Amazing. Well, Jake, thank you for taking all of the time to share secrets uh, and to talk about some very fascinating topics. I am sure that we'll have an opportunity to do something like this again in the future. But in the meantime, best of luck with everything. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Tor, and, and thank you again for, uh, for asking awesome questions. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, and make sure to check out all the Secret Network communities that you can see here, including the Secret Chat the secret forum, and of course our Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time we share secrets.